It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 7th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Tara Mines will go into care and maintenance in a week from today. The decision to temporarily close the mine next Friday and lay most of its staff off without pay has come about because of losses at Blyden of up to €100 million. And despite a number of cost-saving measures that were proposed by the trade union SIP2. SIP2 is calling on the government to, to intervene and save the mine by putting supports in place that will allow the mine to remain open and the company to pay the workers in full. The option of taking into public ownership is not on the agenda, um, uh, de- Deputy, um, but our major concern is with the impact of staff and their families, and this includes 650 staff who are employed directly by the company in Navin, but also staff and companies impacted which have contracts with um, Tara Mines. And Minister Coveney met the management team from Tara Mines last week. Uh, the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment and Officials and Enterprise Ireland, the ag- or, or agency, uh, are engaging with the company to try and work out what assistance can be given um, to, to introduce efficiencies, reduce costs, including energy costs within state aid um, parameters. So every effort has been made to see what we can do um, to to try and get Tara Mines reopened. Um, And also, uh, Minister Coveney met with the trade unions uh, on Monday afternoon. We're very conscious of their concerns. Uh, and the WRC um, meeting this week. All right, and WRC talks uh, continue this morning. Ahead of going into uh, those talks, we're joined by SIP2 sector organiser John Regan once again. Good morning to you, John. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we heard the Thonister there saying the government is making every effort to keep the mine open. Is it possible to do that now? Is the time there to do it with just a week to play with? No, I don't think it is, um, Michael. Uh, the, the, the sad thing about this is that it's more than likely going to happen now. Uh, while the government has engaged, you know, positively with us last Monday, uh, the reality is um, they seem to be suggesting they need more time to be able to do anything. Uh, and it's just not going to come quick enough. Um, nevertheless, if there was a political willingness to want to do something here, then uh, something would be done mainly around welfare issues uh, and making sure that the 
all the workers and all the indirects as well are looked after by way of uh, a reasonable uh, income over and above what the sta- um, what unemployment benefit is, mm. and that's the that's what is required um, for the short term. If the company can, if the government can then uh, come forward with packages to put the mine back into operation quicker than um, you know at this moment in time. Uh, there's no time limit, it's indefinite and uh, the company does, uh, just won't give us an indication of how long this will be. But if government supports kicked in uh, in the coming weeks, then uh, this might speed up all the return to work a lot quicker. And the company can't give the government that time to work on it, can they? There's no prospect of the company delaying this closure. Well... I, I, I'm not going to anticipate what happens today, but it would be um, a, a, a complete surprise to us if that was to occur and the company was to do something to to give the government time. Um, I'm sure the government and the company are talking and I don't know what's happening on that front. But um, no, I don't think it'll happen uh, by Friday of next week. Uh, the company is steadfast on not having money. And uh, we're, you know, that's that's a huge barrier to try and break down at this stage. All right. Uh, I, I think uh, what's happening with the workers probably is a, a great surprise uh, to people uh, like myself. I'd imagine most people who don't have expertise uh, in in industrial relations or employment law, um, like someone like yourself, John, but that if you're temporarily laid off, uh, it's so different to being laid off where you'd get redundancy, you'd get money from the company or the state. But that's not the case because this is hopefully a temporary situation, is it? Well, no, they're they're one of the same. Uh, A layoff is a layoff and the uh, state uh, unemployment benefit kicks in. The contract of employment is suspended while the, the temporary layoff mm. is in place. Um, and that suggests, uh, albeit that we haven't got it in uh, written terms from the company, that they once the layoff ends, terms and conditions of employment of the contract and indeed collective agreements through trade unions would automatically kick in. And, uh, you know, they, they, their terms and conditions of employment would be protected but for some unknown reason, uh, that is not uh, coming from the company at this moment in time, which, you know, is another worrying part of this whole engagement. Mm. But there's nothing similar to a redundancy payment. I mean, there's no money coming from either the company or the state. No, um, look, redundancy is obviously something that will kick in uh, legally after 13, after four weeks and, you know, counter claims can be made. But after 13 weeks, um, there has to be a return to work. And that's not likely to happen either, uh, based on what the company is saying to us. Uh, And we are part of the discussions. We're going to have to have uh, serious talk around uh, ex gratia payments and uh, the the statutory redundancy entitlement, uh, which uh, are in existence since 1995, with the last uh, set of agreements on redundancy pay terms um, there's been no um, redundancies agreed with the uh, trade unions since 1995. Right. Um, so Belayden's not going to pay anything in redundancy if it's uh, statutory payments? Well, we have to debate that with them and hopefully um, get some sort of uh, an engagement on it. Uh, but equally, if that doesn't happen, it's an issue that has to go to the court. 
uh, and that's probably uh, a lot of this stuff is going to end up uh, uh, before the, the Labour Court. Mm. Uh, and uh, I take it at that stage uh, they may decide uh, who they want to bring back and who they don't want to bring back if the mine is to reopen because well, contracts have been fully terminated at that stage. That's always a fear, but again, if we have an agreement for a return to work and the method of calling back people agreed as well, then uh, there should be no doubt about um, any threat to any of the workers that are currently there other than a positive response uh, to come back to work. Again, people will, their lives will change and perhaps they will decide uh, mining is not for them into the future. So a lot of things is, is, is at play when, when care and maintenance kicks in. Uh, people will uh, you know, make up their own mind whether they want to go. And also, we've, we've stressed to the company, they're going to hu- lose huge skills uh, by not having uh, an attractable welfare package that will keep people uh, interested in coming back to the mine whenever it opens uh, and um, the skills will be there to uh, move on with the new phase of this company. Mm. How, how do workers feel about the company, how they're being treated by the company? Well, I think it's, uh, it's self-explanatory. There's mm. a protest outside the uh, gate yesterday and it remains there this morning. Um, and uh, there's just a lot of anger, a lot, a lot of disappointment, a lot of frustration, and a lot of uncertainty around how are we going to pay for the normal living um, things that re- that are required, and uh, social welfare benefit is not going to do that. So mm. all of these things are feeding into a very angry workforce and uh, very frustrated. Mm. And despite years of loyalty, I'm sure people feel that they're being treated with disregard by the company now. Yeah, look, as we've said it uh, from the outset of this, the company has not covered themselves in clover uh, in relation to how they announced it, how they uh, went to the media, how people were, you know, at home reading that their job uh, and hearing on the airways that their job was gone. That has created a, a huge problem for the company. Even when it all restarts and people are back at work again, it's not a climate that you want to create. They need to defuse this. And the best way to defuse it is obviously with a, a welfare package that uh, looks after their workers uh, while they're off. Right. Um, the company uh, issued a, a statement yesterday saying uh, that the protest was uh, prohibiting uh, the company from protecting uh, the mine and they would be entering into any more talks uh, and then subsequent to that they said they would uh, attend talks today. Uh, was there any agreement that led to that change of heart? Look, there's been uh, talking around we have to stay at the table and I think that uh, probably is the only thing that we could keep pressing upon them yesterday and that's, uh, they did um, you know acknowledge all of that and, and confirmed last night yesterday evening late that um, they would be attending the, the WRC. We had always intended to go to the WRC because we're stuck in a process and uh, we were going to turn up there today whether the company did or not. Mm. Uh, they were threatening not to attend. A threat is one thing, but their action may have been different. And they tidied that up yesterday evening by saying they would be attending. So mm. we're, we're hopeful um, that... Um, it moves on from today. Yeah. Uh, if if it doesn't um, get a you know a, a set of proposals that is acceptable today, 
what will be out, outstanding will go on to the court and ultimately we'll be calling on the court to uh, give us a very, very early hearing mm. and uh, try and get this all uh, through uh, by Friday. I think the statement uh, from uh, the company yesterday afternoon called into question the future of uh, the mine. They said uh, that the protest uh, would stop essential maintenance uh, from happening and that could jeopardise the plans to safeguard uh, the operation uh, in the short term but also in the long term. Yeah, look, the, the language that was used is, is not helpful. Um, they are scaremongering the workers uh, with, with comments and, and, and statements of that nature. The reality is there is part of the management team that are underground making sure that, um, you know, the mine is kept uh, reasonably safe. Um, and uh, that's where it's been all day yesterday. They have their own management team uh, that are, you know, well fit to do some of the some of the things to make sure the asset isn't lost. Mm. Uh, but the ultimate people that should be doing this is our work, our members, and uh, you know, perhaps today something might happen. All I right. don't know. All right. Uh, and what about uh, the maintenance uh, over the coming weeks or, or months or God knows how long the mine is going to be closed for? Um, it's to close next Friday, Blyden had said they'd keep 40 people on. You said that was ridiculous and compared it to the situation 20 years ago when they kept on uh, more than double that amount of people. Uh, what do you know uh, about how many people are, are going to be kept on now? It's still part of the issues that has to be addressed where we have um, uh, uh, proposals today. If we get to it, we have to deal with the uh, welfare issues in the first instance, but we, we'll have pr- proposals in relation to how and what we think is the uh, correct workforce for care and maintenance situation, and in particular the people that have the skills that do it every day of the week uh, and uh, bank holidays, 365 days of the year. These are the key people that should be in place for any care and maintenance, but there's a reluctance on the company side of thing uh, to actually buy into that concept. Uh, and uh, it's just mind-boggling uh, with regard to how they can run a Christmas break that are shut down uh, with our members and then when it flips into this care and maintenance they want to use their own uh, management grades. It's just not acceptable the way uh, that's, that package has been put to us. Alright, uh, you started off uh, John by saying uh, your expectation at this stage is uh, that the mine will close next Friday. Uh, this temporary closure, and let's hope that it is uh, temporary. Uh, is there anything that can be done uh, that might change that, do you think, uh, just to conclude then this morning? Well, again, it's a, it's a political uh, end of things. There's really very little we can do other than to keep pressing upon the company that our set of proposals, which... Uh, gave a way out and gave a way to keep the mine running uh, were not treated in the respect that we expected them to be but also um, the government needs to step in here uh, if that's, uh, it, it's in everybody's interest uh, to not have mass numbers going on to the unemployment uh, benefit uh, and uh, that money could be spent very wisely around keeping the mine open.
Okay, we leave it there for the moment, John. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, John Regan, uh, who's about uh, to step into those further talks at uh, the WRC with uh, Belayden this morning. John is a SIP2 sector organiser. Michael Reed on LMFM. I'm sure, like me, many of you have been listening to Ruth O'Connell's reports from uh, Dundalk Circuit Court uh, this week and uh, disturbed, uh, for that matter, at how the court heard uh, about uh, the sexual abuse of a seven-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl. Uh, traumatic incidents uh, that these very young children uh, endured some six years ago. It's a a case uh, that has played out over the course of uh, the last couple of weeks, a a trial that ran over six days in the court and as you heard undoubtedly yesterday, a man in his 60s has been found guilty uh, on all of the charges uh, put before him, bar two. Ruth uh, joins us now, and uh, a very good morning to you, Ruth. It, it really was a, a disturbing case uh, in many respects, uh, but uh, it, it was a landmark case. Uh, can you explain to us why that was the case? Um, It was landmark in the sense that this was one of the first cases investigated by the newly created Louth Divisional Protective Services Unit. Now they're based in Castle Bellingham and they're they're basically focused on cases like this. And um, they were created um, and officially launched in uh, the summer of 2017. And I think it was three weeks later that um, the the first complaint in in, in relation to this case um, was made. All right. Uh, Tell us a a little bit about what happened to these uh, young children. How did this abuse come to light? Well, as you said, there were two victims. Um, a seven-year-old boy, um, he told his father's mother about what was happening and he was um, having a bath and he, he called her to dry him off and it was while she was drying him off that he actually um, outlined what happened. Um, I, she she couldn't quote him because um, as a witness you're not allowed to um, give hearsay evidence, but she told the jury how she responded to this and how she had... Um, basically got in touch with Tusla and and, uh, reported the incident. Now this came as a complete surprise to the boy's mother who um, was out of work and got a call to to, um, go to their office and she had absolutely no clue that there was anything untowards going on. She was aware of a bit of sexualised behaviour by the boy but she had spoken to her GP and was told there was nothing unusual um, about what um, she had concerns about. Okay. And then in terms of, of the, the, the six-year-old girl um, who was a, a year younger um, than actually they were cousins, um, she um, uh, she told her gra- a different granny that, um, what, what had happened and had been told, you know, you, you shouldn't tell lies and uh, it can get people into trouble. And, you know, because she, she, she when she was, she, she initially said, oh, I was joking. Um, but then afterwards, um, she became very upset. Okay, uh, and uh, there is a way of reporting uh, abuse um, like this. Uh, obviously, as you say, uh, you've uh, this new division uh, in Castle Bellingham. Uh, how can people report uh, abuse if they're aware of abuse? Well, if, if anyone wants to make a complaint, and this can be as an adult or if they are also have concerns about a child or if they want to report historical abuse, they can go through the local guard station and, and the case is referred then to the division 
Provisional Protective Services Unit, no matter which there, there's an equivalent in um, in Meath as well. And uh, the unit also gets referrals from Women's Aid and the Rape Crisis Centre. And then in, in cases of child sex abuse, like in this instance, um, referrals can be made through TUSLA, uh, the Child and Family Agency. And if it's disclosed to a professional, they're, they're legally obliged to inform TUSLA, who are then legally obliged to uh, notify um, the Gardaí. All right, two very young children, uh, uh, as uh, you say, a seven-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl. They were cousins. Uh, do we know or can we say what their relationship was with uh, the abuser? Well, I am very, very loath to give anything that might identify the victims, but there was a relationship. Um, um, he, he was married to a relative. All right, Ruth, thank you indeed uh, for that. Let's speak to Eamon O'Neill, who's Chief Executive Clinical Officer with uh, CARI. Uh, very good morning to you, Eamon, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I'm sure you'll agree uh, that this was a, a very disturbing case of sexual assault on two innocent children. Hi, Michael. It's lovely to be here with you this morning. Um, absolutely. And I think this is what we do here in CARI, is that we work with children um, all the time who have experienced um, child sexual abuse. Mm. Uh, and uh, the denial of uh, the man in this case uh, probably is of no great surprise to you. He, he denied outright the charges put before him. I think this is a very difficult subject for people to talk about and there can be denial in the area of child sexual abuse, absolutely. Um, but it's about hearing the children and the voices of the children. And when children speak about um, and tell someone um, that they have been sexually abused, we need to take it seriously and we need to listen to them and we need to act upon it. Regardless of who is being accused, because it does appear that there was support from for this man from uh, relatives. I think it's really, really important, uh, Michael, that we listen to the children um, and and do something about it. Um, I know this topic is really, really difficult and parents and family members can be really worried and afraid, but children are telling us something and we really, really need to hear them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the little girl in question gave evidence uh, to the court. Uh, I take it uh, that's because of the denial uh, and that the denial of uh, abuse uh, is a further abuse. Well, um, there's something about a child's voice, isn't there? And when we look at child sexual abuse, when someone discloses, there's something about the truth and justice and being believed. And um, it, again, as I said, it's really, really important that we listen to children and take what they say very, very seriously and report to Tuttle and the guards. And, um, and this is where Carrie is here as well. We have a national helpline where if people are not sure what to do, where to go, they can contact us and we will give them information and support to help them because this is difficult. This is not easy, mm. but it needs to be done. And we do need to protect children. Our children of Ireland are our future. Mm. But dreadful to have to put a, a child through that after what uh, she had already endured, to have to give uh, testimony in a witness box. Absolutely, and it's very, very difficult. Um, and this is where supports come in, and this is where therapy can support um, children, um, and that um, they 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 are able to to be able to sit in the witness box to get the support that they're needed. Um, so yes, it can be difficult, but again, it's about putting the supports in place for children to be able to do this. Mm. And it's always about listening and believing the children, is it? It's about taking what they say seriously.
mm. and doing something about it. Um, so it is, and children show their distress through their behaviour. So what I'd say to parents um, and carers, if something doesn't feel right um, or the child is, is acting in a way that they're concerned about, go get advice, trust your gut. Um, and go talk to somebody about it. Mm. And uh, children don't always know what's happening to them, um, but uh, I suppose uh, that emphasises the importance of sexual education in schools. Absolutely. And and for parents to have uh, in schools, but also for parents um, to trust themselves and to also know um, when their children are showing something and they feel something's not right, to be able to talk about it, to be able to go and get support, because that's really key as well. Um, children show, um, as a true behaviour, they don't have the language. And in Carry, we offer therapy, um, and it is uh, play therapy because children don't have um, the language. They communicate in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is really key that the adults in these children's lives um, respond and respond appropriately to, to their child. Mm. Uh, the children may not have uh, the language uh, that you'd like them to have in terms of articulating what had happened to them but these children seem to be pretty impressive uh, in recalling what happened and indeed relaying that to the authorities uh, with uh, the little girl uh, for example saying uh, no in no uncertain terms uh, that the door was locked uh, to a room that she was brought into when she was abused and she also told uh, the court uh, that she was told every time by her abuser don't forget our secret don't tell anyone uh, but she knew it was bad to keep a secret and she told her mother uh, and indeed there's the little boy who told of how he, he was being bribed by this man who said he'd get him a, a tablet a computer tablet if he didn't tell anyone and it isn't and for me when you when you speak of these two kids isn't it wonderful that they used their voices and they told somebody and that the people they told did something about this and they responded will they have to live with what happened to them for the rest of their lives will it haunt them in other words i, I, I I suppose, look, it's really how how children are very resilient. Um, it is part of their life. They can't change this experience. But there is, they are very resilient. There's loads of hope. And, you know, and they get the right support. Absolutely. It, it, you know, um, sexual abuse doesn't define who they are. They're more than that. And it's getting the right support in place to help them. Okay. And they have they have they've done that by by the parents around them responding to them talking to them and really really supporting them. Mm. And those two little children deserve our gratitude as well because um this man will not be at her liberty to abuse other children. And and they also are very brave. Um so they are for for speaking up. Mm. And we'd love other children to be able to speak up because it's really, really hard. And it's really, really hard to tell someone that they've been hurt mm. and because there is fear um, mm. and fear of what will happen. Mm. Uh, and uh, as you say, listen to children. Uh, I take it as well, don't ignore children displaying sexualized behaviour, especially at that age. Absolutely. And there is normal um, developmental um, behaviour that children do explore. But if you're concerned or it doesn't feel that this is normal, you need to go talk to somebody. Okay, we leave there, Emer. Thank you indeed. Uh, Let me Um, just give out. 
oh yeah, sorry, the, the helpline number. Yeah. Thanks, mm-hmm. Michael. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, because uh, I know that whenever we discuss issues like this, uh, it uh, sparks a, a chord in people uh, and uh, there may be people looking to speak to somebody and so the carry helpline number is there for that purpose exactly and that is 0818 I'll repeat that again in a moment. Uh, there's also then the website which is carry.ie uh, and keep it in mind uh, that carry receives no state funding as well uh, so you might also want to, to donate uh, to carry and uh, helping them to do the work that they do, carry.ie. I'll give you the helpline number once again. It's open from 9 in the morning to 5 in the evening, Monday to Friday. The phone number is 0818 Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. And the evidence in that case in Dundalk uh, by that 12-year-old uh, little girl uh, was by video link, obviously. Uh, and that is what I meant uh, by saying the witness box. Dreadful to think uh, that a 12-year-old ha- has to appear, whether it's uh, by video link or in person in front of a, a court, to give evidence like that uh, about such terrible abuse. But anyway, let's turn our attention uh, to the front pages of the newspapers today and RTE's GAA correspondent Marty Morrissey is from Page News. He's the subject of controversy by all accounts. Let's speak to our political correspondent Sean Defoe. Uh, good morning to you, Sean and thanks for joining us on at the programme this morning. This is because Marty Morrissey had a, a car on loan from Renault for five years. Where's the controversy? Yeah, well... <laughs> Controversy, I suppose, uh, if you read the front page of the papers, is everywhere. Uh, some very creative tabloid headlines this morning. Marty's died for five, etc. So, uh, so the controversy is in the fact that he didn't declare it. And this is where we're, we're getting into with undeclared, different sort of deals. And the difference between Marty Morrissey and, say, you know, Ryan Tuberty or Claire Byrne or some of the other bigger RT stars who may well have deals with other brands is that Marty is a member of staff at RT. So he is permanent pensionable and comes all the benefits like part of the trade-off of being, a, you know, Ryan Tuberty and being a contractor is that while you get paid to exorbitant events, mm. you don't get those sort of benefits of the PRSI benefits maybe that we would, uh, the regular employees would get. So mm. the policy in RT is that if you do extra uh, extracurricular or out of your, your contract work as, as quite a lot of you know presenters or journalists may well do be it emceeing something or whatever they have to seek permission and Marty says that he sought permission back in 2017 to MC a road show I think it was 12 gigs for uh, for Renault yeah, Renault asked him and he asked RTA is that okay RTA said that's okay and that's it they said yeah. that's okay he wasn't yeah. going to take any payment yeah. for it but then in lieu of payment Renault offered him the use of a car and uh, initially for one year and then he said that continued in an ad hoc arrangement for mm-hmm. five years and the day after the Tuberty scandal broke he decided it, maybe that was a mistake and to return it so I think the fact that he didn't seek permission for the car or didn't declare that to RT really is where the controversy is coming up and it's why you're, you're now talking about Kevin Backhurst a part of the reason why at least you're talking about Kevin Backhurst now introducing a, a register of members interests for the Iraq or for the, the not the Iraq Authority rather yeah, this is the guy taking over the new director general who starts in his job on Monday isn't it 
Yeah, talk about a baptism fire. Coming in on Monday, on day four of his tenure, he will be before the Public Accounts Committee. We already know that. He's going to be in next week. Um, so, yeah, he, he's already outlined. He spoke mm. for the first time publicly yesterday after meeting the media minister, said he is going to institute changes, particularly among executive management. So it's going to be very interesting on Monday to see now what he does, where he tries to, to wield the axe as such, where he can wield the axe uh, and reform it, and potentially as an opportunity, I guess, more than any other previous DG has had to institute change because there is an atmosphere now that demands some sort of change. So if you were looking for someone to reform the agency and get things through that mightn't have been palatable even three months ago, he, he potentially has that opportunity. Mm. Uh, we heard about this car being on loan to somebody for five years at uh, the media committee. Uh, Timmy Dooley was asking questions about it. Timmy Dooley is saying today that uh, RTE have thrown Marty Morrissey under the bus uh, that uh, this apart from getting uh, their information on it wrong in the days when it was handed back wrong and that sort of thing uh, that uh, as far as he's concerned uh, this has nothing to do with why RTE is in the spotlight No, well, see, this is the thing, right and this is where we really got I thought on Wednesday's committee is we are totally getting away from the issue and the barter account came out and we all lost our minds reading through it because it is a sensational reading and it is very, very interesting. But it all got away from the point that this is about the barter account used in all sorts of companies, used in media companies, used in all sorts of companies, not necessarily a controversial thing, even if you disagree with maybe some of the payments that have gone through it, they were still a one one thousandth of RT's commercial revenue. The issue going through it was that there were uh, consultant fees marked as consultant fees of €75,000 over two years that were actually payments to Ryan Tobin. That mm. is the controversy at the end of this. Not really Marty Morrissey, not really the flip-flops or whatever else it is, and that we are getting away from all of that. And that is the danger that RT finds itself in heading into next week now, what is going to be the last week of the doll, starting to head into the new city season. You're going to have the forensic audit review probably falling in the middle of August. Proctor's committee is falling after that, meaning that RT is going to be the story all through the summer. And that is where you get... Uh, a dangerous territory for an organisation because all sorts of things start to come out, all sorts of questions start to be asked and that's when, you know, politicians in particular tend to to lose the plot as well. It's odd as well because uh, Ryan Tuberty is being treated very differently than Marty Morrissey by RTE. What did Ryan Tuberty do? Uh, He didn't rat RTE out. Uh, That seems to be his biggest crime, if you like. He didn't stand up and say that information is wrong. Uh, He may have helped uh, the false information uh, by saying, yeah, I took the pay cut and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, But his biggest crime is he he didn't say RTE are giving wrong figures. Marty Morrissey, uh, on the other hand, uh, has done a deal with Renault and didn't tell RTE. Ryan Tuberty is off air. Marty Morrissey is on air. Yeah, and he's going to be commentating this weekend. I suppose what they're they're looking at is and saying, well, is there necessarily anything wrong with what Marty Morrissey did? There are a lot of uh, presenters who have different deals uh, along the way, and what this looks like. And you had indeed the MEP Sean Kelly saying this last night was that he took the car loan in lieu of payment he would have got mm. a payment which could have been in the region of you know twenty thirty grand depending on what his fees are. I don't know what his fees are, and uh, Kelly compared it to you know, picking uh, picking spuds for a farmer and then taking a sack of them home yourself, that there was nothing actually wrong with it. Mm. Whereas when you look at the, the Ryan Turbity stuff, yeah, what did he do? And this is probably the argument that will be made before the committee when he's there on Tuesday. His agent went and got him a really good deal with RTE. He gave yeah. back 15%, sought an arrangement that for the duration of that contract, 15% would be the end of it and that he wouldn't have any other pay cuts. Uh, I think what is galling 
RTE staff more than anything, though, about Ryan Tuberty is he seemingly didn't notice these extra payments, which were higher than a lot of their salaries going into his account and never mm. bothered to tell RTE about it. And then at a time of total flux for the organisation, when many of them had been asked to cut their pay, when many of them were unsure what their pay would mm. be like over five years, he was the only one to get the, the golden letter to say, yeah. don't worry. Won't yeah. be touched. I can understand why the staff would be rightly peeved off about that. Why is RTE peeved off about it? Was he not loyal to RTE uh, by not blowing the whistle? Yeah, well, we don't really know that RTE are peeved off. They've actually said very little about Ryan Tuberty. Mm. The only criticism really at the committee the other day was that he didn't necessarily get hugely involved with Toy Show the Musical, but again they said that he was supportive of the idea and gave it airtime on the Late Late and on the show, etc. So we actually Ortiz's view we don't really know. They say the only reason he's off air is for editorial reasons. He is the subject of the biggest story in the country that's been on the front page of the newspapers every day for two weeks. It wouldn't really be appropriate to have him on his magazine show in the morning talking about gigs at the weekend or whatever's in the papers when what is in the papers is him. So, you know, that's where we've gone and I think Tuesday is going to be fascinating because look we've talked about how many PAC committees have we talked about over the years people who go into PAC do not come out smelling better than they went on the way in he has chosen the hardest possible way to publicly speak about this which is going to be more than six hours of open testimony with every TD and Senator looking yeah. to score points against him Tar and their feathers. moment on TV exactly get their moment on TV and radio or their social media clip and all throughout it if he wants to have any hope of a career future he's going to have to appear contrite He's going to have to appear sorry, going to have to appear yeah. likeable, and to keep that up for six hours. And to no keep calm, to keep calm under that pressure. And, and, and think of some of the questions he's going to be asked. Yeah, he's going to be asked yeah. straight up, is your salary not exorbitant? Or do you mm. deserve that kind of yeah. salary? Are you mm. worth that much more mm. than your colleagues? Difficult questions for anybody, let alone someone who's in the dock. All right, leave it there, Sean. Thank you indeed. Until next week. That's our political yeah. correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's reflect on the RTE week with uh, Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Me, the Melda Munster, who's a member of both of uh, the committees that had RTE executives in front of them uh, this week. That's the Media Committee and the Public Accounts Committee. And a very good morning to uh, Melda Munster. It was another dramatic week. Do you think that we're getting close to the end of all of this stuff? Well, I don't think so, Mike. I think there's still so many questions to be answered. I think, um, and I don't think they've been forthcoming. Like, it's it's three months on from when the um, RT Executive Board came aware of the, the hidden payments. So they said, like, you know, but we're still in the dark about what's going on. And rather than having answers, I suppose, we're facing even more questions than when they started. They said initially that they'd be upfront and transparent with the public and not drip-feed information, but the the information has just been drip-fed the whole time. <clears throat> we have to extract it painstakingly from them, you know, and there's more information every day. Um, they're still being selective in what they're given. They're, they're, they're not being upfront about all the facts, like, and all of this is damning, and, you know, the public can see that. But um, I think, personally, I think when the forensic accountant goes in, that's the time that we'll actually see what else has been going on. I don't think we're, you know, they're going to divulge any more. The executive board, mm. should I say, is going to divulge any more. They're going to avoid it um, if they can at all. Mm. So I think the forensic accountant will be the one to, to unravel what's mm. behind it all. Like Nice. Uh, wrongdoing, that is. 
Yes. Right. Okay. Uh, because uh, we've seen other things uh, uh, exposed, I suppose, if you could put it that way, uh, in the organisation, the government governance and the management of RTE uh, and incompetence, uh, I think, is the word uh, that could be used above other words. I mean, it's clear corporate governance is just non-existent. Uh, with the executive board, no financial oversight. They seem to be a law unto themselves. I mean, I just can't get it out of my head like what mm. happened, you know, raising false invoices to conceal those payments, mm. underwriting a separate commercial deal at a cost to the taxpayer, 345000 mm. The secret top-up payments funneled through the barter account, the drip-feeding of information, the extravagance mm. of the, the splurging, you know, of, of monies. All of that, I mean, it's 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 unbelievable. And as I said, mm. <clears throat> the, the underhand concealment of it all, they literally thought that they, they wouldn't have to answer to anybody. Yeah. Uh, the concealing of it is one thing. Uh, the rest of it, what happened is uh, that sense of entitlement uh, that they have yeah. uh, and that there is money there, spend it burn it, yeah. uh, it's there to be spent we are RTE uh, after all uh, but there is a level of incompetence uh, I think uh, that is unbelievable and an incredible sense of self-belief from people uh, who have demonstrated huge incompetence uh, and the biggest best example of all of that is the Late Late Toy Show when you hear from people who work in theatre uh, who have experience, who have expertise, uh, who were shaking their heads at, at the time. And now it seems as though this was just madness. S- somebody yeah, somewhere yeah. thought, we're RTE, everybody loves the Late Late Show, let's take €3 million Euro and throw it at this. Uh, and, you know, the consequences of it are just ridiculous. Yeah, and just at a, you know Christmas time when there's pantomimes on everywhere, other Christmas shows didn't take account of the you know the small population, mm. if you like, relative to Dublin and that sort of thing. Just ideas above their station, and just again public money. Let's throw no regard for mm. the public purse or anything else. Like two point two million in lost to the taxpayer. Yeah. When when you look at it and the scale of it, I mean, why couldn't they have started small? and see, see how it well, went. Well, why couldn't you know, they we, have made radio or made television yeah, with yeah, the yeah, 2.7 yeah. million Again, euro? Look, I, I, I mean, what does RTE do? This is a, a question, uh, apart from the scandals and everything else, this is a, a question that may finally be addressed. I don't know how often we get uh, comments from people saying, sure, there's nothing on it, it's all repeats. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt that RTE do excellent news and current affairs. Uh, there's no doubt that RTE does excellent sports coverage, although they prostituted that now with the GAA Go. Uh, but what else does it do? Uh, most of the programmes that people think, well, I watched uh, uh, Kin or uh, whatever, uh, they're bought in. They're made by independent companies. They're not made by RTE. You could be watching... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. ...them on Virgin Media if they weren't outbid by RTE because RTE has all the money. So what does RTE do? It's about to go on three-month summer holidays. Yeah, I mean, it's they get 190 million of tax, you know, through the licence fee, public funding every year. And if you had a penny for every time they have reruns on or they make copies of programmes that are, you know, you see abroad or that kind of thing, but constantly reruns. I mean, every Christmas, every Christmas to this day, you can guarantee the Wizard of Oz and something, it's a quiet man. It'll be, there's, there's just, as you said, it's news, current affairs and sports coverage. That's where they excel at if you like but everything else is questionable that's why I suppose so many people have Sky subscriptions Netflix mm. all of the others you know because there's nothing on an RTE mm. but you know it's it's back to just the whole lack of governance and the mentality and they the take an exception to being asked questions and mm. don't question us we're RTE um, just the blatantness of all of that the drip feeding uh, of the information, the the unwillingness yeah. to 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 clear the decks, if you like, and to to be upfront and truthful about it, you know, mm. all of that. It's just it's crazy stuff going. It's exhausting, to be like, honest with you. It's uh, exhausting. If, for example, uh, there's very few people in the country aged between twenty and thirty who ever watch mm. or, or listen mm. to RTE. Yeah, is it is it a public service broadcaster? Uh, uh, and I think the answer is no, because a public service broadcaster serves the public of all ages uh, and everybody, uh, every cohort, uh, 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 every way you would break down the people in society. And there's lots of things that people between 20 and 30 are interested in. Yeah, look, if, I mean, and if you they want to sustain themselves going forward as a public broadcaster, you have to be always across all of your audience. And if a whole generation of young people and, you know, that'll that'll continue that they just don't, they wouldn't dream of putting mm. on RTE. If that's continuing into the future, then they've lost, they've lost their, you mm. know, future kind of listenership and our, mm. you know, people tuning into RTE. Yeah. They've, they've lost the, their customers. And then you have that age group, all of us, uh, but that age group, let's say, that never watches RTE. Uh, being asked to pay the television licence fee so that it can support the RTE orchestras. Yeah, look, it's just, I mean, there's the talk... There's elitism. Yeah, the the people, the anger out there is is unreal, you know, and what they're watching unfold before them. Um, There just has to be that insider culture that was allowed, allowed that rot, if you like, Mm. has to be rotted out, rooted out, rather, should I say, the executive board, the new um, Kevin Backhurst, the new uh, director general, he said he's 
going to restructure the board. There has to be the register of public interest established. That has to be done straight away. Yeah. The treatment of other workers in RTE, that yeah. has to be dealt with. The two reviews they're, need to look yeah, into they're that. They're going to publish the lowest paid 20 employees, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, my colleague Finton um, had asked for that. Uh, just to make comparison. But when you look at the deal, uh, the, the done or what was done to facilitate Ryan Tuberty, mm. you know, the bending over backwards, the f- facilitating him by funneling uh, public money through a barter account, the underwriting of the agreement, all that mm. false accountancy, if you like, raising the invoices under a, a different heading. And then the treatment of other workers. I mean, mm. I've had... I couldn't even put a number on the amount of correspondence I've had um, from workers within RTE and some of the, the information you've been given is absolutely shocking. I'll give you one, and this is this is very, very trivial, right, but it's extremely trivial, and, you know, in comparison to some of the other information I got. But I did, one item of correspondence was, and I'm using it to illustrate the, the treatment between the two workers, there was one um, busy period where I, I think it was just after elections and reporting and all of that kind of thing, um, where the the editor from a newsroom came in and walked over to the, the presenters and congratulated them and thanked them for their work. And then there was other workers in the same room, the cameramen, you know, make up all of that never even acknowledged their existence. The, uh, the same person told me that at Christmas time, the, the top people in RTE would walk into the room, wish their top presenters, if you like, happy Christmas, enjoy your time off with your family, wouldn't even look in the direction. So there was a whole two-tier system. Mm. Think the executive, and that's trivial now, but that oh, okay. will just show you yeah, the yeah. culture. You yeah. know it's what I mean? An, a, a, far more serious yeah. information. An attitude that's been adopted so, yeah, of culture. Yeah, Do you yeah. think that the executives yeah. have been treated fairly by the Oireachtas members, uh, yourself included? I think a lot of people were very uncomfortable listening uh, to the exchange between yourself and Geraldine O'Leary, the commercial director. Uh, and her saying uh, that she felt her position was untenable because of uh, the intrusion into her private life and her husband's private life and how they're being hounded out of it on uh, Twitter or whatever else. Well, she avoided the question that I put to her by giving that response. Let me say that first. She didn't actually answer the question again. But those questions need to be asked. We're doing our job and we need to get answers. And it's the answers that we're getting are not satisfactory. I mean, if we don't get ask those questions, particularly from the Public Accounts Committee or the Media Committee, where we're tasked with good, you know, governance and oversight and policy and public money. These questions, they have to be asked and they have to be answered or it will continue to happen. And I think maybe the executive board are feeling the heat now for their abysmal, if you like, lack of governance and transparency and oversight and particular Mm. the underhand concealment. Okay. I mean, I'm not going through all of that again. They've been mm, found mm, out. Mm. You know, talk, talk, to about ne- talk to me about next Okay, talk to me about next week, if you would. Uh, you'll have Ryan Tuberty and his agent, Noel Kelly, before yeah. both of the committees you sit on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can they expect tar and feathers? No. Again, as I said, I mean, they, they offered themselves, the committees were sending out invites, and then we got a letter to say, um, 
through Ryan mm. Tuberty's solicitor, I think it was, that they would be happy to come before the committee um, to answer questions or, I suppose, to put their side of the sto- story on the public record. Uh, but to my mind, it's top management that allowed all this to happen. It's top, you know, they... Mm. they do you, do you have questions for Ryan Turbidy, though, or no, Kelly? Well, yeah, you'd have questions. I yeah. mean, they, 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 for example, when his salary figures were published, he knew that they were understated by 75000 um per year and didn't correct it, didn't, you know, say anything, just let it slide, if you like. Yeah, was that um, part of the deal, I suppose, is one of the questions. Did he agree when agreeing the deal not to say anything when RTE yeah. let on otherwise? Yeah, and then the, the letter of comfort would be another one that the Director General um, gave to them, gave to him, you know, about mm. uh, that they're guaranteeing him that there wouldn't be cuts or reduction in the salary, you know, mm. when the rest of the workers took the cut. Um, yeah, and then Ryan Turbidy was telling media, um, we uh, looked at that Daily Mirror article that Paddy Cosgrave uh, had posted on Twitter to remind people of comments made by Ryan Turbidy that he said he had taken a pay cut uh, and uh, it was at the time of launching the St. Vincent de Paul Christmas Appeal and he was saying at the same time that he was haunted by the poverty that children were living in, that he had taken this massive pay cut and all the while it was a lie. Yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, it's but again, our our top management facilitated that. They underwrit the the agreement that cost the taxpayer three hundred and forty five thousand plus whatever else the Reynolds deal cost. And mm. um, they they're the ones in charge. They're the ones that are supposed to govern and and look after everything. They allowed it happen. I mean, Ryan Tuberty was going to take mm. all that he was given. Mm. You know. RTE allowed, or the executive board allowed it to all happen yeah. and then went to conceal it. That's, yeah. that's the issue. That's If you're to have accountancy, you know, that's the issue. They have to be held accountable. And if they're feeling the heat now, yeah. you know, they shouldn't have done what they did. Would you be asking him about Soho House, for example, uh, if he wanted to entertain a few friends in London, uh, would uh, RTE agree to that being made available to him or... Uh, you know, not him mm. specifically, but top stars. Uh, I mean, would you be able to call up uh, the head office and uh, say, listen, there's a Bruce Springsteen concert on. Um, like to go along, maybe bring, you know, 30 people. Uh, how does that sound? Oh, why not? Um, would you like to go for dinner as well? Send Just send us the bills. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying that that happened, but would you be asking mm. if it did happen? Well, maybe similar questions along those lines, but primarily um, clarity around the, that video call, the meeting that was held with the Director General and Ryan Tuberty's agent and the, the, the minutes of that meeting, that's, you know, that's where it all kicked off, mm. where they agreed to underwrite the whole shooting gallery for him. Um, and then again, that letter of comfort, I'd be interested in asking him, did he or his agent request that or was it offered to him mm. you know and just what other things were available yeah. just we, we'll get mm. the I think we'll get their opening statement yeah would you, would, would you be interested would you be interested in the BBC's interest in uh, Ryan Tuberty or Ryan Tuberty's interest in the BBC because Ryan Tuberty uh, like a lot of these presenters uh, gets a couple of months off in uh, the summer 
uh, which really calls into question the salary, doesn't it? Um, but anyway, uh, good money if you can get it. Uh, but he, he gets a couple of he spends some of his summer holidays when he has, gets a couple of months uh, working uh, for the BBC, filling in. Um, I, I think at one stage for Graham Norton, he filled in maybe for Chris Evans at, at one stage. Not sure that uh, there was an opening for him after that performance. Uh, would you be asking if he wanted to go to BBC or uh, one of these other British stations, uh, or if he'd uh, been turned down if he had applied? Well, I mean, the whole thing is about these obnoxious uh, salaries that some of the top presenters are on. I mean, Shunni Rahali, uh, the new chair of the board, not the executive board, yeah. um, she had actually said there, I think it was last week, they're actually bidding against themselves. I mean, when you look at the small islands that we live in and the, the you know, the captive audience, if you like, yeah. um, those salaries, I mean, there's... None of them have ever come out and said there was someone trying to poach them that offered other money. There was just that culture all through the years where, you know, tiptoed around their top presenters, gave them whatever they wanted for fear of losing them. I mean, God forbid, but it could happen to any of us tomorrow. You could go outside and be hit by a bus. Nobody's irreplaceable. Nobody. So if somebody were to go, but there's, there's a weak excuse for giving, for paying those massive salaries at a time when they were crying poverty. And that seems to have gone on, right? I mean, they're totally unjustifiable in my mind. They're just crazy salaries. I haven't had time to do research on what, you know, big international news media pay their top presenters. But, uh, you know, I'm talking about the the big ones. I'm, Mm. I'm sure where the salaries RTE are paying are nearly on a par, if not more you know, yes. and we're on a much smaller scale. It, there's, there's just no justification for it. And I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable what, mm. what's gone on and the way they've gotten away with it for years. And all of this is just unravelling now. Exactly. And But the important thing is to make sure that everything, that insider culture is rooted out, that there's changes to that executive board, that there's strict corporate governance oversight rules, that there's that register of public interest. So this sort of rot Mm. doesn't continue and that people, you know, can begin to start building up trust again because at the minute that trust is lost because, you know, people are just looking at a cesspit of scandal. Desi no, Bal- no, you know, that inside culture, nothing, nobody answerable to anybody, drip feeding of information. It's it's unbelievable. Okay. Desi and Balbriggan asked me to congratulate you uh, after your performance yeah. at the media committees. Uh, I think uh, you've uh, certainly uh, uh, put shivers down the spines of people who uh, may need to go in front of your committee in the coming weeks. Uh, and uh, I'm sure yeah. the people next week are no exception. That's our job, Mike. You know, that's mm. the, we do that every week at PAC. That's our job. It's just the media focused in on this one for obvious reasons, but it's our job to question and to guard public money. But little did we know that this, all of this um, concealment was yeah. going to come up in relation to false invoices and underwriting. I mean, it's, little did we know this was going to happen, but um, there has to be that accountability and if people don't get account if and consequences mm. I mean I keep saying that that's that never happens week after week at the public accounts committee we've different whether it's the HSE or other people in and there's never consequences for reckless 
spending or unaccountability of public money. And that if there's, there has to be consequence in this, otherwise the trust that's gone down the drain will never, ever rebuild unless people see that people are held to account and there's consequences for that. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. I'm sure uh, we'll hear a a lot from both of the committees that you sit on next week and perhaps uh, you can return to speak to us on the programme at some stage next week as well for that matter. But thank you for joining us uh, today. Sinn Féin today for Loud and East Meath, Melda Munster. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Noel French is uh, apparently considering leaving Fine Gael and running in uh, the next local elections as an independent. Meanwhile, Gerry O'Connor is hoping to resign as the whip of Fine Gael on Meath County Council. Let's uh, speak to Councillor Gerry O'Connor and a, a very good morning to you. Is all well with Fine Gael in County Meath? Uh, good morning, Michael. <clears throat> yes, uh, yes, all is well with, with Fine Gael County Mead. Uh, and just as a clarify in relation to my own position, I'm nine years as a whip for Fine Gael. And coming up to any election, uh, which is there's a local election next year, I'd always have a look and, we, and we'd always have a discussion about who's going to be the whip for the last year. So I instigated the discussion uh, in relation to it and we're going to have a meeting in August decide what we're going to do with, as a team. We work as a team. Uh, so it's not that I'm resigning this whip. Or, uh, it's a matter that we'll decide as a group who will be the whip for the last year. In relation to Noel, uh, I've had discussions with Noel, uh, brief discussions, and Fine Gael uh, headquarters have asked them to meet with Noel. Uh, I, I read, I was delighted to see the article in the Chronicle this week, which, which now restated that he's, he's a Fine Gael councillor. He, w- he was yesterday, yesterday, and he will be tomorrow. Uh, and so I'm hoping that we'll get a good result where we can keep Noel on board. He's a very, very valuable member of our team. Uh, he's a top uh, person. Uh, as, a, as a person, he's a top man. And also, he's, he's very good, very good at getting his, uh, his votes up. Uh, he had nearly 3,000 votes in 2019. Okay, well, that's good reason for not wanting him to leave uh, the party. But uh, I, I suppose the reason you're here this morning is to tell us that the rumours that are rife at the moment on the internet are unfounded, are they? Uh, they are. Look, uh, I, I probably, I mean, if you add two and two and you get five, that's the way I describe some of the stuff that's on the, on, on the internet. Uh, we work very closely as a group of 12 uh, councillors. Uh, I instigated this, and probably in hindsight, you know, I instigated it amongst my own members, and somebody leaked it uh, to, to, the, to the press, uh, and it just happened to coincide with Noel's uh, decision what he was, what he was deciding about whether he was going to run or not next year, as as, as a councillor at all, because uh, so it all just fell into line, and it feeds into this. I think Finnegan is very healthy. We're looking forward to the local elections in twenty uh, twenty four. Uh, we're hoping to increase our members, uh, our, our members on the County Council, and we'll be targeting 15 or 16 uh, seats. So all is healthy in Fine Gael. Uh, some of the rumours I've seen, they're laughable. And we were in Dáil Airden as a consistency officer board for, for the county with Helen McEntee uh, at a dinner. And then that was fed into a story as if it was a crisis meeting. The only thing we were discussing was was was, was our dinner. 
Uh, and 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 getting to know each other because new officer uh, members on you know. So. Right, I'm tempted to ask you how the dinner was, but uh, maybe was maybe another day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen. Thanks for the clarification. Thanks for joining us. Much appreciated. Uh, that's uh, Finnegale Councillor on Mead County Council, Jerry O'Connor. Michael Reed on LMFM. What happened in Janine this week uh, was not just shocking, but it was an unjust assault on civilians and indeed civilian life. People were murdered by the Israeli government. It was criminal. And while all of us might have tut-tutted from the comfort of our armchairs watching these horrendous scenes on our television screens. The truth is, we all stood back and watched. There is a need to build stronger consensus, frankly, across the European Union. Uh, a number of, when I say like-minded countries who um, have a very strong views here on, on, on this, uh, we, need to get, get, we need to persuade more, to be frank, within the European Union. Uh, towards the need for justice um, here uh, and to create a credible pathway to a two-state solution. The real worry and concern here is that the two-state solution is becoming increasingly unviable. Um, And in my view, uh, Israel's ultimate security, which it always puts forward as its rationale for its behaviour, in my view becomes untenable in the context of not having a two-state solution. In other words, it makes sense that you get on with your neighbours, that you work with your... uh, and and so forth, to create a peaceful environment. What's happening here is a very shocking escalation of of violence by a government that has moved perceptibly, obviously, to the far right in terms of its composition. Thank you. Now we're over And with very dangerous ideas within that government. Right, uh, that's uh, the Tanishta Michal Martin speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Let's hear from Independent Senator Francis Black. Good morning to you. Thanks, uh, as always, for joining us, Senator Black. Uh, I'm sure you were horrified uh, at uh, what we saw unfold in our living rooms on televisions over the course of uh, the week. Uh, were we helpless or, or uh, was there something that we could have done? Well, there's always something that we could have done, to be honest with you, uh, Michael. It's 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 really horrific what's happening in Palestine, you know. And I often, I worry sometimes, you know, that there's so much awful stuff happening in Palestine that I, I sometimes get concerned that people might switch off and not li- listen to the latest update on what's happening because it's so traumatic, you know. And like there's just such a steady flow of bad news, broken promises and, and, and hideous oppression that often can even render the, the most compassionate people to the, to, 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 to be desensitised to the point of absolute numbness. And I just think we can't let that happen. And I really do. I'm really, Michael, you're, you're great on this issue. And I think, you know, I'm very, I'm very appreciative of the, of the way you highlight this because we need to really reckon fully the, the destruction being wrought by Israel and, and with the complicity, actually, of the international community. Include, and we are, Ireland is the international community. I mean, violence, discrimination and repression are making everyday life impossible and unbearable for the Palestinian people. It's an apartheid situation and the ongoing Israeli invasion of the Janine refugee camp is the largest military incursion into the occupied West Bank since the early 2000s. And, and mm. it comes, when you, when you look at the, 
the reality of the situation. It comes just after a massive wave of settler violence against Palestinian people and, and, and their property, you know, and they have the support of this, this military support, the Israeli army behind them. You know, when you look at how many people were killed during the week, uh, some of them children, thousands of people have been displaced from their homes by soldiers who had their guns drawn. Can you imagine the terror? No. And the worst part is, is that the Israeli military has again deployed the cruel and illegal tactic of impeding ambulance services mm. from aiding the wounded. I mm. mean, how horrific is it? It's just, and I just can't get my head around the fact that the international community, including Ireland, are standing by and letting this happen. Mm. And, you know, there's there's a you know, there's almost a hypocrisy in, and, and like, you know, immediately, um, you know, there were sanctions put in, in against Russia, and rightly so, yeah. because of Ukraine. But here we have a situation where the same thing is happening, but why? Mm. What is it? What is it about the Palestinian people that Europe can't get behind it? And we all know the answer to that, you mm. know. So, I mean, it's... The Jewish you know, vote in America. Yeah, it's it's well, it's it's a Zionist vote. I mean, we have a brilliant support from you know um, uh, Jews, Jews for Peace. They're a fantastic mm. organisation. You know, so it's about the, the Zionism. It's about it's as the government. It's the Israeli government. You know, Jews Voice for Peace are Jews Voice for Peace are, are part of our anti-apartheid campaign. So mm. I need to highlight that. Mm. You know, they're very, very, very supportive of this issue. Um, but it's the government. It's the Israeli government, and 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 it's the, it's the way they're dealing with this. It's just it's, how it's, how you know, did they do it? cleansing. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah, but how, how did they do it? I mean. Uh, can't lose sight of the Israeli argument uh, if we're to assess what happened fairly. Uh, but I can't understand how they did what they did, and it's not the first time in Janine. The Israelis say their enemies are in Janine. They call them terrorists, rebels, whatever name you want to put on them. But if they have enemies and they want to target them militarily, that's one thing. But having said that, and parking that uh, to one side... Uh, and accepting it as a fact, if you like, Francis, that the Israelis have enemies that uh, they want to wipe out. How, even if that is the case, and if there is justification for that, how can they do that to a city full of thousands of innocent people and leave then, and leave the city in the state that it's in? Surely there's an obligation on them now to go back in and rebuild apart from anything else. But not even that. I mean, stop ambulances going in. Whether mm. They're talking about children here. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're talking about children. I mean, I cannot stop thinking about the children being marched down the street. They're already, you know, I mean, their homes are slums. Their homes are destroyed. They're carrying their toys, their pets, and whatever small comforts they have to hold on to. Like, you know, in Israel, war crimes are committed and Palestinians are killed as a form of political theatre to prop up public support for a corrupt racist and increasingly authoritarian government. And that's what we're dealing with here. And the problem for me is that, again, and I'll come back to this, Michael, Mm. we, the international community, refuse to impose meaningful sanctions. And a mockery is being made of international law. And the dignity and the humanity of the Palestinians are being denied. So I feel, and I'm so disappointed with Michal Martin's statement yesterday. I really am. I mean... And I really think we're going to have to, I mean, we've all, I'm, all, I'm already involved in the anti-apartheid campaign, um, you know, because 
look, we have unbelievably amazing um, human rights organisations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Bethlehem, all coming out saying mm. now that it's an apartheid situation. Mm. So we really need to up the ante here. We have to now start contacting our local government TDs and senators and saying, no, this is not acceptable. You know, because if Ireland continues its policy of inaction, we will betray the Palestinian people's belief in us. Mm. They do believe in Ireland. Ireland, you know, is one of the countries that they they look to, they come to us, you know. Mm. They assume that the solidarity and concern expressed for them by ordinary Irish people is reflected in the actions of our government. The Irish people understand what's going on for for the Palestinian people. And yet our government... Are, we are, are not willing to take action and it's heartbreaking and it's deeply shameful to to see that they will not take this action. Your you know? legislation uh, would ban the import of goods into Ireland uh, from Isra- illegal settlements. Israeli-occupied yeah. territories uh, and there's been huge support for that not just here but right around the world uh, in the world. principle. Absolutely. But yeah, the government absolutely. says it's unconstitutional. You know, well, if they believe that it's unconstitutional, let it be unconstitutional and let it go to the European Court, if that's what they believe, you know. So let's pass the bill. Mm. Let's, let's take this on board. Let's pass it. We got it through seven stages the last time. We only had to go through one more stage and then there was an election called and unfortunately Fianna Fáil and the Green Party did a U-turn on this. Very, very disappointing. Mm, well, they had supporters. Up to that point, yeah. to that mm-hmm. point it was in the... It was in the programme for government. So it was just so disappointing mm. and, and really and devastating. In opposition, they had supported your bill uh, as well. Absolutely. Uh, but Absolutely. Uh, the uh, Micheál Martin, uh, speaking there, uh, you said you're disappointed uh, with that statement. He appeared to be saying there's very little that Ireland can do on its own, that we need to bring people together in Europe to act in a unified way uh, against Israel. The exact same thing was said about South Africa in the 80s. They said the same thing. We have to be Europe has to be unified yeah. on it. But then Ireland let out on it. Yeah, you know, because of a few women in Duns. Two women in Dun stores refused to take the oranges, receive oranges, yeah. and before we knew it, then it was just it, two powerfully strong, courageous women, and the unions got behind it, which is fantastic. Mm. And and in fairness, the unions are like we are part of our anti-apartheid campaign mm. as well. And I know there was a delegation went out to Palestine and saw the reality for themselves. I mean, you know, if you know what I'm going to say to you, I'm going to give you a couple of examples, if this is okay, of the of the apartheid situation. Yeah. Like we have severe movement restrictions in the West Bank, in, and that's enforced through a network of checkpoints and road closures. This is people who are trying to drive on their own land, you know, mm. and it's combined with you know, permits. I mean, I don't even think that happened in South Africa, and I could be wrong there. But this is combined with permit system, which forces Palestinians who wish to visit other areas of the occupied territories to seek the Israeli military permission to go from one part of their own land to another. So they're stopped. There's checkpoints. You know, you have systematic denial of building permits in, mm. to Palestinians in East Jerusalem, which results in repeated home demolitions and forced evictions. So that's for the, that's for the expansion of illegal Israeli settlements in East. Now I'm saying 
Can I repeat that when I say the expansion of illegal Israeli settlements in East Jerusalem, which forces Palestinians out of their homes and confines the Palestinian population to progressively smaller enclaves. So they're kind of pushing them all into these smaller areas and they're not even allowed to build out on their own land. They have to build up, you know? So like, I mean, that's only one or two. The denial of Palestinian refugees internationally protected their right to return to their own homeland. Like Israel bars displaced Palestinian families from returning to their former villages or homes in Israel and the occupied territories in order to retain control over the demographics. So, yeah, and then you have restrictions on access to land and fishing areas in the Gaza Strip, which really exacerbates the socioeconomic impact of Israel's illegal blockade. So, look, these are only a few of the things. And if anybody is, is interested in this, look at Amnesty, Amnesty's report. On apartheid. Mm. But what can we do? What, what, what can people do, Francis? What suggestion? I mean, for people like me sitting watching the television during the week going, oh my God, that shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. Uh, but you're helpless watching it. Write uh, 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 to your local government TDs. Please, I would ask people to write to their local government TDs and say to them, will you, do, will you st- stop talking about inaction and saying those things that Michal said, Michal Martin said the other day? Let's get into action here. And you can do things. You can you can actually pass the occupied territories bill. And if it has to go to the European Court of Justice, let it go to the European Court of Justice. Let it. Let's fight this battle for the for the Palestinian people. So that's how I feel about it. And I think what we need now, like we really do need the people of Ireland to say enough is enough. Okay. And that's what our that's what yeah. our intention is now with the anti apartheid campaign. Right. Sign up mm. to our campaign, mm. you know, on Amnesty International, go on Amnesty International, sign up to our campaign, get involved, you know, we'll keep you contact we'll keep in contact with you with with what's happening around the anti apartheid campaign. But please sign up to it, give your email addresses and then we'll send you how you know, how to go, what what next to do. But we have to get into action. And it really, we need the people of Ireland to do this. Okay, we I have to leave it there, Ireland Francis. I've run over time, but thank you very no much problem. indeed. Much appreciated. That's Independent Senator Francis Black. Michael Reed on LMFM. Family Carers Ireland has uh, published its uh, pre-budget submission in which they call for more recognition of carers and indeed more support for the works that uh, some 500,000 plus family carers do every day in this country. You know, we're all aware of the work that the carers do. However, uh, as you know, uh, my department is about giving people a basic income uh, and uh, we have increased uh, last year's budget, uh, the means test threshold for the carers allowance so that more people were able to benefit from it. Uh, in fact, we brought it up to uh, high, uh, 750 euros, which is the highest, highest it has ever been. Uh, and of course, we continue to review the means test. Uh, and, but there's a broader uh, uh, discussion to be had here and it's in terms of how do we compensate carers for the work that they do uh, and uh, I think that we have to have that conversation there's no doubt about that uh, but that involves uh, a number of other departments uh. That's the Minister for Social Protection Heather Humphrey speaking in uh, the doll yesterday Catherine Cox of Family Carers Ireland joins us now and a very good morning to you and thanks as always for joining us Catherine the Minister's statement was in response to the publication of your pre-budget submission what did you make of what Heather Humphrey said? 
Um, look, I suppose I uh, acknowledge, first of all, that Minister Humphreys is the first minister in 14 years to actually begin to raise the uh, income disregard for family carers. It didn't uh, go up or increase for 14 years before that. However, um, I, uh, by the way, I also agree when she says that this is much broader than social protection. Um, obviously, carers rely on supports and services from our health services. Um, and indeed, carers prop up our health services uh, by doing the work that they do. But for the, I suppose on the social protection side of things, the Minister mentioned the means test for carers allowance. We are saying carers allowance as it is, is completely outdated system. Mm. It undervalues the work that carers do. It's completely inadequate in terms of the amount. Carers get just €237 Euro per week if they even get that payment. Only one in, fam- one in four family carers get it because of that means testing. And it also forces carers to be financially dependent on their partner because they look at the household income on the me- for the means test, not just the carer's income. So that needs complete overhaul and over the next three years we've asked that the means test be completely abolished. A carer okay. should be paid for the work that they do. Okay. Uh, and that the carer's allowance would be replaced by uh, another means of paying people? Yes, what we call a participation income because there is no doubt of the value of the work that family carers do in our society. They save our state 20 billion euro every year, which would actually pay for a whole new HSE. So that's the amount of savings. So what we're saying is carers should be paid for the work that they do, particularly full-time carers. And um, you know, the, the minister mentioned there could be, you know, a huge number of people then suddenly looking to apply and get carers allowance. That will not be the case because the medical criteria will still be there. Mm. They will still need to be providing 35 hours or more of care. And let's be honest, you know, nobody is going to apply to be a family carer unless there is a an illness, a disability okay. or a need in their family. If, there no. if your means, sorry for cutting across, if your means are, are, are uh, too high to qualify for a carer's allowance, you can apply for a carer's benefit, can you not? Well, no, carer's benefit is a system whereby if somebody is working and they need to take time out of work to care for someone, they can do that for up to two years. But it's not means tested is the point, is it? not, yeah, but but the person needs to be in in employment. Um, But after two years, that runs out. Um, And so then they're faced with a situation where if they have to give up work, um, if their partner has a decent salary, then they may not um, be able to get carer's allowance. And it, carer's mm. allowance also it doesn't take into account the huge outgoings that carers have around additional heating, lighting, mm. maybe different foods uh, that they need to bring in for the person they're caring for. It doesn't take into account if they have to pay, and many do, for therapies for a child or an adult because those therapies are not available um, through the HSC. But there is um, a support grant, is there not, uh, that, are available, that is available to people? To help the care and support grant yeah. is a payment. It's paid um, in June every year. At the moment, it's €1,850. Um, that's not means-tested, but the person does need to be a full-time family carer. Um, but again, about 120,000 people get that actual payment. So not all family carers get that because right. mm. there is a, a rule around how many hours. And with the cost of living, there. you want that increase to 2000 in the budget. Uh, it, it sounds from what you're saying that people are forced into positions where they just have to make very difficult decisions and it may be impossible for some people to care for 
their husband, wife or child uh, uh, or whoever the relative is at home. Uh, and what happens then? Do they go to hospital? Do they go into a nursing home? Or what's the situation? Yeah, so in many cases, uh, the person might go into what we would consider inappropriate residential setting. So we do have over a thousand people in this country who are under the age of 65 but are in um, nursing homes, for example, because there's no residential places for somebody of that age. Um, and the cost of somebody going into residential care or indeed into hospitals um, is hugely more expensive than actually putting the support into the community and into the home so that a carer can continue um, caring safely for their mm. loved one, both financially but also the lack of services on the health side of things. And the Minister mentioned that this is broader than just social protection. This is also about access to interventions, therapies like speech and language, physio, occupational therapy. We know there are children and adults on a waiting list for one and two years for these vital supports and therapies. And denying, particularly children, denying them access to those therapies and interventions at a young age denies them the right to grow to their full potential. And it stores up huge costs in the future for our health services. So this makes economic sense to put the support in place for family carers as well as making moral sense. Um, And so we are calling on the government and we're saying given that there is a surplus in the finances this year, more so than ever, please make carers, family carers a priority put the supports and services in place. We know if they were to abolish the means test in the morning, it would cost $390 million per annum. That is actually a drop in the ocean when you consider how much care is saved our state every year, $20 billion. So whilst $390 million might seem like a lot of money to ourselves, it isn't when you look at the, the uh, HSE, the budgets that they have. Mm. Put it in place, get rid of the means that at least that allows carers to have some financial security okay. and then get rid of those waiting lists. They can use the National Treatment Fund to pay for those therapies if they want to. They use it to pay for mm. cataracts. Why can't they use it uh, for children and adults' mental and physical health and disability? Okay, there are just some of uh, your wishes uh, ahead of uh, the budget. Catherine, I have mm-hmm. to leave it there though but thank you Thanks indeed so for joining much. us as thank always you. that's Catherine Cox of Fam- Family Carers Ireland that's our programme for this week God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie Even on a budget Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.